Today, we're going to talk about early pregnancy loss. And if you're not in a place right now where you can listen to that conversation, we invite you to stop and come back if and when you want to. We honor your decision to take care of yourself, and we wish you all the best. This is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. As many as a quarter of all known pregnancies end in miscarriage. It's estimated that perhaps as many as half of all fertilizations never come to term. This happens long before anyone knows they're pregnant. Miscarriage is, by any measure, common, and yet it's rarely talked about. And that creates a situation where people who have suffered a loss, a profound loss, often do so alone and isolated from support. We've begun collecting stories of pregnancy loss for our oral history project, Hear Me Now. Here's an excerpt from one of those stories. Sam lives in Portland, and she began by telling us about how dramatically the pregnancy changes your thinking and how you see your future. Well, it just takes over your whole life. It's all-consuming. It's I have to change everything. I can't have my night wine or beer or whatever it is. Yeah, no sushi. No, I was a cigarette smoker at the time. So I was like, well, I guess that's done. You just start dreaming about the life that you're creating and what it's going to be like when they come out. Um, what are they going to look like? Are they going to have red hair? You know, you start coming up with names and, you know, you're at work and you're just on autopilot and you go, Oh, Archer, you're going to be good at baseball. We love baseball. And you're, you know, we're going to do all this stuff. And yeah, I mean, it's, that's what I mean. It's all consuming. I don't know how anybody isn't just focused on that 24 seven all day long throughout their entire pregnancy. But I think about what the alternative was for me when I did find out that the baby or, you know, it wasn't viable. That was what the doctor called me and said, and that just made it feel like it wasn't a baby at all. They treated it like it was a tumor. I tried to think about it rationally, but I just spiraled. Uh, But since I decided to do it naturally, I waited for four weeks before I actually started to bleed, which is another long span of time to just know that you're carrying around your dead baby I like to say that I was a walking coffin. Like I'm just carrying around this thing that brought me so much joy for a short amount of time, you know, nine, 10, 12 weeks. Now it's dead and it's inside me. Uh, And that was like torturous. That's Sam. I'll have more information about how you can hear the rest of her story a little later in the program. The losses that happen with childbearing are all profound. By gestational age, They range from early pregnancy loss or miscarriage in the first trimester, through stillbirth later in pregnancy, to the death of a live-born child in its first hours or days of life. We want to acknowledge all forms of perinatal loss, but our focus today is on those that occur early in pregnancy, during that time when the pregnancy is not evident and may be unknown to others and what is unseen is often ignored. Let me introduce our guests to you. Both practice at the Swedish Center for Perinatal Bonding and Support in Seattle. Veronica Zantop is a psychiatrist and medical director of the center, which she established. She's also the medical director for reproductive mental health at Swedish. Dr. Zantop, it's good of you to join us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me and Lexi Fleming, a licensed clinical social worker and therapist at the center. Ms. Fleming, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. We're so fortunate to have this growing collection of women's stories. I'm curious what you heard when Sam told us part of her story. You know, Sean, when when I heard her talk about that, um, Sam very well articulated that um, that it's not just the loss of, you know, like she was saying, and you know, a tumor or something that's not living yet, but it's it's already living in your mind and it's already living in the future and it very much defines your future. So you're losing that as well. 
So that loss of a perceived future, I would imagine, is like a whole separate category of grieving that must go on. And in another way, is sort of even more invisible to the outside world. I mean, no one really knows what you've imagined about your son, Archer, and his baseball future. Um, but you know it. You've lost that. And you're mourning it. Yeah, exactly. The thing that strikes me about that is that's so internal, right? She was describing being at work and sort of suddenly thinking about names and hobbies and things that she'd be doing with her future son. And because we give women the message of don't announce your pregnancy until you're 12 weeks or even after, women are encouraged to stay silent about their pregnancy. And often, you know, that's the first trimester when women are often feeling really sick and really tired with morning sickness. Um, they're expected to hide it. And so they're also expected to hide their excitement and then also then their grief if they miscarry. And so something I hear women say is, yeah, I let myself get excited. I let myself think about names and I even browsed, you know, baby clothes at the store and then they feel foolish. Like everyone told me not to get too excited and there I went and let myself go there. And they, um, I think they feel like they don't deserve to grieve in the same way you would grieve for a, a living person. Let me play another excerpt from another story for the two of you. This is Lauren and she lives in Muskegon, Michigan. I wish people talked about it more because it's frustrating that when people have losses like this in any kind of pregnancy loss, it feels like it has to be under the radar. When I told my mom, she said something like, I hope you learned your lesson because I did end up telling people before this, you know, quote unquote, say phone that 12 weeks or second try or whatever. I told people before because one, I was excited. I was, I wanted to share that. And two, there are people in my life that I feel like if I don't feel well or whatever, they need to know that I, I want to share that I want their support, especially having dealt with like depression and anxiety for the last few years of my life. Before I got pregnant, I knew that I needed people in my corner. And so when she said that, I said, why should women have to be, or, and men in, in this, why should any partner that's had a pregnancy loss be alone in their grief or their joy? Um, a lot of people have a hard time holding space. They feel like they don't have that capacity. And, and if that's you, then that's okay. There's, there's ways to kind of step back in a kind manner, in a, in, a, in a loving manner to say, I'm really sorry for your loss. I wish I could say something or do something to make this better, but I'm here for you. And then you could then step back. But some people have that capacity to just sit there like we are now. Like you have, I've been like yapping for 45 minutes and you've just been listening. And some people have that gift to be able to hold space and just be there for someone. And I think that's the greatest thing anyone could do when a loss happens, whether it be a pregnancy loss or a death in a family, is just be there and just show support. And you don't have to say anything. You don't have to even say, I'm sorry. You don't have to ask how they are. You can just show up, just say, I'm here if you need me. Obviously, um, everyone's needs are going to be different, but... In your practices, do you sense that people do want to talk about these losses? Sean, I was going to say um, absolutely. And and I can completely relate to that anxiety that you feel uh, when you ask someone a question and you don't, you can't fix something or you don't know how to respond or you're concerned that you're going to say the wrong thing or they're going to be angry or you're going to make things worse. Um, I think the other thing about miscarriage is that there are not a lot of forums to talk about grief. So if you've you know, lost someone in your life, then there are kind of publicly acknowledged rituals to structure your mourning and, and ways of getting support. Um, and there, this does not exist with miscarriage. And then women frequently, they'll miscarry, you know, go to the ER, go to their OB doctor, and then be discharged, and they won't see their doctor until their next pregnancy. Um, and because pregnancy is, is frequently not shared until a certain point, um, you, you don't have people asking you, or people do ask you, how are you doing? But it's not necessarily the time to talk about having a miscarriage. Is there a standard of care for women who have suffered a pregnancy loss? 
there's not, there's, it's actually, I was just reading about this in an article, how there really is no standard of care. I mean, there's just only recently a standard of care for women um, suffering from postpartum symptoms in terms of screening and treatment, but there isn't. I think ACOG has some recommendations about um, it being good if providers can engage women in a, in a conversation about what happened and give them resources, but that's as far as I've been able to find there's a standard. And I should say that ACOG is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Yes, and I could be wrong about that. That's what I was able to find is that there really aren't, aren't general guidelines about that. So... In a typical scenario, say a woman is spotting or is cramping badly, goes to the emergency room and they do an ultrasound and they tell her that she's miscarrying, chances are they're going to discharge her with either instructions to wait it out or to make an appointment for a DNC. But I get the impression that there isn't going to be a referral there on the spot to say a chaplain or a social worker, or other people who might be able to intervene at the behavioral health level to help someone through a traumatic experience. Yes, I think that's true. I think from the stories that I hear from women who are our patients, the vast majority find out that they've miscarried in the emergency room or at a follow-up OB visit where they see that there's no heartbeat. And... Um, you know, there's discussion about how to handle it medically, certainly, but generally, I think the emotional impact is not um, cared for. And that's not saying that OB providers and midwives aren't very kind and very supportive and like, you know, loving in their care. But I don't think there's a lot of knowledge of, okay, what would happen next? Um, not immediately a referral to a, you know, grief group or, um, you know, sending people with, you know, written resources or direction to some websites that would help them. I think it's generally sort of a, okay, go home, rest up, um, and you can start trying again in X many months and then come back for care when you're pregnant again, unfortunately, is kind of the message that's getting received. I think what's interesting too is that um, because this frequently happens in the, the ER or to um, visit with your OB, that they've shown um, in studies that self-blame, um, there's a high link between that and, and subsequent anxiety and depressive symptoms, and yet that's something that's not addressed. And so I think even if um, there was just a little bit of psychoeducation around this is not your fault and this is why a lot of um, women end up miscarrying, I think in the survey that I was reading, it's, you know, 50% of women felt a strong sense of guilt that they had somehow precipitated or done something wrong to cause the miscarriage. Um, and then more than three fourths actually thought it was stress that had caused them to lose the baby. And that's, you know, and if that's not attended to fairly quickly, that can fester um, and, and certainly develop into, you know, more than grief that the self blame kind of worthlessness piece is really uh, dangerous, I would say. You know, the word miscarriage, it, it is common and it's problematic in that it, it appears to place the onus on the pregnant person, that the pregnancy loss is the result of a failure to safeguard the fetus. And, and I'm wondering about just the language we use to describe describe this early pregnancy loss. Yeah, I'm sure Lexi has, has a lot to say about this. I was just going to say, it's as a physician, um, we use so many words, um, just kind of routinely or rotely, and then it's not until we get feedback from patients about how it comes across that you realize that it's really inappropriate and very, um, you know, it's really language to communicate with other providers, but it's not language that you use to communicate with patients who have so much at stake emotionally, like even the viability or miscarriage. I mean, those are all, or geriatric pregnancy, or those are just terrible words. <laughs> They're all judgmental. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Incompetent cervix is the one that really sets me off. Yeah. I, I am fascinated by the fact that English has a word for someone whose spouse has died. We call that person a widow or a widower. Mm -hmm. We have a word for someone whose parents have died. Uh, they're an orphan. But we lack a word to describe a parent whose child has died. Mm -hmm. As if it's too awful even to name. And it makes me think that 
this notion of reluctance to talk about uh, miscarriage is is a subset of this phenomenon of the pain of losing a child. Yeah, I think that's really profound. And I was thinking, I think about that a lot on Mother's Day. And that day is super hard for women who have been pregnant and lost a pregnancy and are not parenting a living child because they don't really know where they belong. They feel like a mom in the sense that they have created an identity around that they've been thinking about having a child, they've been pregnant, but they don't feel like they belong in the mother group in the sense that they don't have kids at the playground or they can't relate to, you know, potty training struggles. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think the overall, there's a, there's a really difficult time in our American culture around death. We're not very good at supporting people who are grieving, but then specifically in a, in the population of um, people experiencing pregnancy loss, um, miscarriage, stillbirth, neonatal death, there's so much discomfort because it's an out-of-order loss, right? We expect our parents to die before us, right? We expect our grandparents to die before them. We don't expect our children to die, and certainly we don't expect an unborn baby to die. And so people have a, a great deal of discomfort naming that kind of loss. And then because of the discomfort, there's a great deal of awkwardness, which then makes the grieving family feel awkward and as if there's no space for them to communicate that they're struggling. And so they end up just kind of um, handling it on their own. Um, it can often feel like unprocessed grief. It can, as Dr. Zantop was saying, lead to you know depression and anxiety because there's nowhere to sort of work through those feelings and talk about it and connect with other people who've been through the same thing, um, the same way you would for a different kind of loss. Mm -hmm. Dr. Zantop, earlier you said that you could appreciate the awkwardness of not knowing what to say, being afraid that asking about a miscarriage would make things worse. Do you have any advice on how to work through that awkwardness and be able to accompany people on that part of their journey? Yeah, that's, you know, that's such a good question because I think I still feel that sometimes I had, a, this is not directly related, but I had a good conversation with my son. My father-in-law died a couple of days ago and, and I said, you know, have you checked in with dad recently? And he said, well, you know, the day that, that Papa died, I talked to him. Um, and I said, well, have you talked to him again? He said, no, why would I want to do that? It's just going to make him sad. And I said, well, you know, he's he's sad. There's nothing you can do about it, but you can share his grief or you can take on some of that burden. And he was like, but I don't know what to say. You know, I mean, it's, you know, don't ask a question you don't want the answer to. And I think um, I think the, the last excerpt that you played was she said it so well that if you go into the situation thinking, okay, I have to say the right thing, or I have to fix this, or I have to somehow make the person feel better, you'll probably go astray. But if you just go into it and think, I'm just going to listen, you know, I'm going to be here as kind of to, to absorb some of the grief, to help, you know, carry some of the burden. Um, I don't have to say anything. I just need to understand what this person is going through. I think that makes a huge difference. And I mean, as a psychiatrist, one of the things that you learn in, in residency is the ability to just, you know, absorb, carry affect to not respond to it right away, but just to sit with it, which is hard for people. It's hard for me, absolutely, to sit with with people that are, you know, with sadness and grief and it's it can be very uncomfortable. But it's also healing if you're able to do that. Lauren used the phrase, um, hold space. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a term of art, but it, it seemed a beautiful description of that ability to be present with someone and not be directing what goes on. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because psychiatrists and I think therapists certainly learn to do that. Doctors, I would say generally it's more difficult because we're taught to fix things, right? Someone breaks their leg, we put on a cast, we give them medication. And and so my instinct sometimes is to say, you know, I'm sorry this happened. But again, kind of saying the worst thing you can, which is you're still young, you can get pregnant again, or you'll have another baby or, um, which is really invalidating. <laughs> but but that is sometimes the, the kind of trigger response is let's, oh, this is so painful 
what can I what what can I do to fix it and to make people feel better, which is the wrong approach. Right. Uh, given how common it is for pregnancy to end before term, um, sh should we be doing something to reframe our expectations? There is this expectation that every pregnancy is going to end with a live birth and a healthy child. And given the fact that we know that that biologically is not true, should we be arming people with better developmental education to explain that, you know, miscarriage is something that happens frequently? Uh, I, I love that idea. I think absolutely we should be doing that. There's an element, too, of not wanting to scare people, right? A first-time pregnant woman, you know, you want her to be or individual, I should say, you want them to be prepared, right? You, you want them to have the information. But, you know, I think if at their first OB visit, if you sort of said, and by the way, there's a 25% chance that this won't, um, you know, that, that you'll miscarry, that that could be really anxiety provoking. But I, I think um, Veronica and I share a belief that women are capable of holding complex thoughts in their heads about risk levels and um, what they ha actually have control over and teaching women about the actual biology of pregnancy and understanding the complex maneuvers that the body actually has to do in order for a pregnancy to be viable. I mean, I remember I studied biology in college and I remember thinking it was a wonder that anybody came into this world when you really right. look at all the, the complex um, you know, developmental processes that have to happen just to form, you know, one organ, let alone an entire body. Um, and so, you know, allowing women into that process, letting them know what your body is doing is really remarkable. And that sometimes when, especially when there's something wrong, the body miscarries and it's nothing that you're doing wrong. You're not responsible um, women will try and find a way to blame themselves, as you were saying earlier. Um, that seems to just be part of the grief process. The meaning-making part of our brains really want an explanation. And so normalizing that, but also normalizing that a great deal of this is completely out of our control. And women shouldn't have to sit in that alone, that they can actually have the support of their community as they're growing you know, a fetus and that they don't need to feel shameful uh, if, if they miscarry. I agree with Lexi. It's um, the shame is really, I think, poisonous because there is, you know, there is a, a sometimes unclear line between grief and depression. And I think depression is frequently fueled by that sense of, uh, you know, guilt or shame or like it was your fault on some level versus just being able to grieve a loss without that culpability. Which is which is so difficult, I think. Um, I also, I mean, it, it's such an interesting point, and I don't never know how to get around this. You know, sometimes education makes people more anxious, and sometimes it makes them less anxious. So we will frequently talk to women during pregnancy about postpartum mood and anxiety symptoms, and sure, that could make you very very anxious about the postpartum. But when you're in it, knowing what it is means that you're not thinking you've lost your mind, you know what it is, you know what to expect, you know what you're experiencing, how to get treatment versus just feeling like you've become completely unhinged. So I don't know the, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I do, I mean, we've talked about language so much. I've just, I'm sitting here thinking about all the language that we use, like even the DNC, that's, you know, dilatation and curatage. It's, it's terrible. Like you're scraping the baby out of the womb, you know? Um, so maybe if we, change the language that we use or kind of our perspective um, that that could help women psychologically. I don't know exactly how, but I think it could. That's Veronica Zantop, psychiatrist and medical director of the Swedish Center for Perinatal Bonding and Support in Seattle. Also with us is social worker Lexi Fleming, a therapist at the center. We'll be back with another story from our growing collection of pregnancy loss stories in just a minute. Stay with us. Thank you. 
This is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. We're talking about early pregnancy loss today. And here's an excerpt from Danielle's story. She lives in Tacoma, Washington, and she told us how she found out that she was miscarrying. Well, you know, it was during the higher volume times of COVID. This was in the beginning of December, so right after Thanksgiving. I was fortunate in a way that I was at a clinic that allowed a person to come to an ultrasound, but the person that I had invited actually hadn't been socially distancing properly, so I asked them not to come. So I went to the ultrasound alone. The ultrasound tech... Uh, has been working in the field for a long time and is apparently at this clinic allowed to give information, told me that there was not a viable pregnancy and then sent me back out into the lobby, into the waiting area to wait for the doctor to tell me what was next. And so I had to go back into a lobby full of visibly pregnant women Um, having just been told that I was miscarrying instead of being allowed to sit somewhere else, even in the bathroom would have been better. And I, I knew this happened to women because I've sat with women in my office who this has happened to. I've had friends that this has happened to, but it's just not right. You know, I didn't want to take away from the families who are sitting talking about their plans for their babies. I don't want them to be afraid that they're going to go back and receive bad news, you know. So I just kept sitting there saying, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Praying that they would hurry up and bring me back so that I can finish having the worst day of my life. (sighs) Danielle's story is devastating in so many ways, but I think especially in the way that it points to healthcare providers contributing to her suffering. Yeah, that's really heartbreaking to hear. And, And you can hear her, she's a provider too, so she understands what's happening to her even in real time. I think, you know, we talk a lot in our clinic about how trauma gets recorded. And when a person is experiencing a loss like this, it's definitely a a likelihood that it's going to be recorded as a trauma. But the way that they are treated in those moments can make all the difference, right? So having a caring person be attuned to her emotional state and say, you know what, normally we would have you return to the waiting room while we wait for this person, but I can see that, you know, it, you know, they don't even have to say this out loud, but they can, you know, realize that she needs um, a different kind of care. And I think whenever we're talking about a standard of care, I worry that we're going to get into having sort of a, a really prescribed way of treating each person. Mm -hmm. The reality is grief comes on in different ways for different people. Different people are going to experience trauma. Um, I've certainly worked with individuals for whom miscarriage was very much recorded as a, you know, oh, it was a trisomy. My body did what it needed to do. You know, I'm sad, but I'm also appreciative of my body kind of went through a very scientific process to understand their miscarriage. And then there are people who experience it as a as a truly profound loss of a child, right? So it's not for us as the providers to tell somebody, this is what your loss is. It's for them to tell us. And in this case, she, the level of grief and uh, shock she was experiencing, ideally her provider could have tuned into that and provided her with a, you know, a quiet place to grieve, um, you know, figured out a way to make sure she wasn't alone in that experience. Um, I'm really sad to hear that. And unfortunately, I think the extra layer of COVID resulted in a lot of women going through this process, similarly alone, um, not having their supports with them, which I think is extra heartbreaking. 
You know, I, I think in terms of trauma, because um, Lexi's right, we do talk about trauma a lot, and studies have shown that um, up to 47% of women will experience some PTSD symptoms. And really, um, with we know with postpartum PTSD, it doesn't matter what the trauma is, so it's really not dependent on how bad the trauma is, it's how it's perceived by a patient. And so I frequently wonder about how you can temper or, or help with the perception to make it less traumatic if it's really about the perception and not what's actually happening. So, you know, a feeling of helplessness or feeling really out of control or not listened to, not being able to participate in the decision-making process or feeling like your life is at risk or someone else's life is at risk. They know those will perpetuate uh, PTSD symptoms. And so what this woman was describing is is some of that feeling of kind of helplessness and not being able to determine how she wants to grieve and how she's going to face what's going on and um, and also you know kind of identifying the impact that she can have on other people. It's it's all of those are not I would say very psychologically stabilizing things. Um, and to really minimize the risk of PTSD symptoms, you want to help people feel less helpless and more in control and more empowered rather than disempowered. May I tell you a story from my family? There is a 12-year gap between when my brother was born and when I was born. And during those 12 years, my mom miscarried seven times. Mm -hmm. And then I showed up and everything was fine. <laughs> I was the miracle baby mm -hmm. that came to term. Mm -hmm. uh, jump ahead 35 years and I'm 35 years old. Mom is dying of pancreatic cancer. And I'm there with my brother and my sister and my mom. And out of the blue, she said, do you think I'll recognize them? And we said, who? And she said, those babies. Mm -hmm. Well, immediately our response was, of course you will. But reflecting on it after the fact, I thought she had lived more than half of her life carrying that trauma and loss and on her deathbed that's what she was thinking about mm -hmm. was the fact that she had lost seven pregnancies and i thought my lord we carry this trauma with us for a very long time perhaps and every subsequent trauma you know elicits some of the past symptoms of the past trauma as well I think that story is so powerful, too, because you were unaware of how much it was affecting her, but it probably was profoundly affecting the way she parented. Hmm. You know, we see a lot of anxiety after loss. We see a lot of um, maternal anxiety, sort of this sense it's, when you've had that many losses, you have this very up-close look at the fact that nothing is permanent nothing is for sure guaranteed. And so you tend to hold your living children very close and tend to be very careful um, hmm. because you know, you know that, that it's not guaranteed that people live to adulthood. And so what we often see, and I see women in um, what's called PALS, like pregnancy after loss support groups, is that the level of anxiety is often off the charts, you know, just going into every ultrasound, holding your breath. And then, you know, finally after de the delivery being, you'd think, okay, now they can take a deep breath, but no, it's actually, now they're worried about the next thing that could befall their baby. And then it's the next thing. And then it's hard to, you know, let them go off to daycare or summer camp because they're just such, so concerned with like, I could love something and I could lose that thing. Um, and so it's really important when we're talking about um, miscarriage or pregnancy loss, that we let people know that that's a normal, adaptive way that your brain will operate, but that it can be um, difficult to go through the world that way. And it can affect the way you parent, it can affect your own childhood growing up if your, your parents are overprotective. So um, yeah, I, that's just what comes to mind when I hear that. Shauna, I've been sitting here thinking about your mom, and I, I can't even imagine having to go through that much grief and that much loss. Um, it makes me wonder if 
because I know we see a lot of, or I, you know, a lot of people in my parents' generation or older, they're like, oh yeah, you know, I had really bad postpartum anxiety or mood symptoms. And it's just something we never talked about. And I know until recently, you know, it was always thought that pregnancy was a time of joy and, and well-being for women. And they're kind of reaching the pinnacle of their life and, and their life's, you know, work. Um, but but that it frequently isn't that at all. And until people started to look into it and do research, um, it wasn't clear that this was so widespread and common. So I wonder if, I mean, I just feel for your mom and wonder if this had happened in this day and age, if things would have been different, Hope probably not as different as we'd like to think. Um, but it's just such an incredibly compelling and sad story. I wish I could be there for her back when she was going through that. You would have liked her. She was filled with piss and vinegar <laughs> and was a lot of fun. I love that. And played a mean game of bridge. Um, I'm thinking that these losses are felt acutely by women, um, but they're felt by others. I mean, there's there's a father, there's there are other marriage partners, grandparents, other children, perhaps in the family. This is a loss that's felt widely. Yeah, I think I appreciate you bringing that up because I think sometimes you know we tend to focus on the grieving woman or the grieving individual. Um, the we know that um, partners grieve too, and sometimes that grief can look really different. So um, because the loss doesn't happen necessarily in their body, they might have a different experience of the pregnancy. Um, and because of the way men and women are socialized differently to talk about their feelings, sometimes um, it can be uncomfortable for uh, male partners to talk about their feelings, or they don't want to make their wives or girlfriends feel guilty, right? So they don't want to say like, I'm really sad that the baby died because if she's blaming herself, then they might worry they're going to make her feel worse. Um, so normalizing that grief can look different and that it's okay to talk about it. Um, the classic thing that we see when we see men who are grieving is they often want to sort of throw themselves into a project. I mean, we always say like the garage has never been cleaner, right? Like there's something about having something productive to do that feels good. Um, and so we'll often talk about like, just make sure you're checking in with each other. Just make sure it's clear that, you know, she knows that you're thinking about her and the baby. And um, it's about kind of having open communication about, okay, I'm having a good day or I'm having a hard day or today's a day when I'm really needing to talk through the story again, or today's a day I just need to kind of numb out watching a show um, and not think about this. Um, and it's okay to kind of take your time with that grief process. Um, yeah, no, I agree with Lexi 100%. And, um, and I, you know, she has experience talking to couples going through this more. Um, I mean, I definitely you know, have seen that when when women especially are are experiencing, you know, PTSD symptoms or depression or anxiety, it has a huge effect on partners and the whole family. Um, and not only that, but also clearly partners also become invested in the, in the baby and in the future um, or the future that that baby represents. Um, and so so that's really I think that's really important. I think partners very frequently kind of get left out of the equation. Um, and given that everyone is so intertwined, especially emotionally, it would behoove us to really uh, support them as well. I've been struggling with an idea, and I perhaps you can help me sort of think through it. I'm curious about the fact that there are two parallel tracks in our culture and in clinical settings. And, and one is people who experience a spontaneous loss of a pregnancy. And then parallel to that are people who decide to terminate a pregnancy, either to exercise a reproductive right or for some other therapeutic reason. And those two seem to come from slightly different places of how you think about the nature of the loss. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to think, I mean, in the medical terminology, we talk about a spontaneous termination. That's like code for for like a, a miscarriage and then like a, an actual termination, like somebody chose to terminate. And then within under the umbrella of like 
people who are choosing to terminate, there's, like you said, a wide variety of reasons, sort of social reasons. Um, it's an unplanned pregnancy. Um, but then there's also people for whom it's a fetal diagnosis or there's a maternal health condition. And so similarly to miscarriage, the individual's experience of that can range tremendously, right? I think there's some women who get abortions and they feel very clear in their decision and it's not really a grief process it's it's just it's really clear to them that that's what they want to do but then there are people who end up terminating pregnancies who very much are grieving and maybe they're grieving that they that they it wasn't the right time to have a baby or they're grieving that um they felt coerced by their partner or they you know one thing after another um i see women largely for termination for medical reasons, TFMR, and they are absolutely grieving and they're grieving, their grief feels very disenfranchised, right? There's not a lot of space in our culture for women to talk about terminating a pregnancy due to a fetal condition. They feel like a lot of those women haven't even told their families. Um, they'll either tell them they miscarried or they won't have even told them that they're pregnant at all. And they're carrying a lot of, um, shame about it. Um, and that's something that I feel really strongly needs to change because um, that's too much of a burden for, for people to carry. Yeah, I can see you're thinking about that. I mean, culturally, it seems like two very different things. You know, one thing happens to you and then the other is something that you are instigator of. And it would appear that there'd be a lot more judgment, um, both externally and internally about something like that. And so much harder to process that kind of grief. Um, that's really, really hard. Um, I definitely have seen a lot of women who've had to terminate their pregnancy and have had, you know, equal or more grief than women where it happened spontaneously. Um, but it is harder to deal with kind of culturally and, and within a family too, who might have different, you know, religious beliefs or, or cultural beliefs, things, things like that, um, which puts a, a whole nother layer of kind of emotion stress on the decision. Yeah. I want to play one last story for you from our Hear Me Now project. Angela lives in Seattle. She told us about her decision to have a DNC when she learned about her pregnancy loss. So my options, and I talked to my doctor about my options, which were that we could wait for it to happen naturally, which could take up to a month, or we could go home and take medication. But sometimes the medication uh, wouldn't remove everything, or we could have a like a small surgical procedure, a DNC, where the doctor removes the tissue. And I'd had some good friends who had had miscarriages, and they had just it sounded like they had had a really rough time um, going through that the, the physical part, and so they kind of recommended just going for the DNC. And which was a little bit more expensive, but it just emotionally, I guess it seemed easier. I think we went in for the DNC at like, I think it was like 11 weeks. The thing that was kind of heartbreaking to me about that was that, you know, usually people will make a pregnancy announcement and the, after they finished the first trimester and we were pretty close to like, if the baby had been healthy, we would have been pretty close to making a an announcement. So that was hard for me to, I remember just going into the room and everyone was just really kind. There was a nurse, older woman that just seemed so kind. And the anesthesiologist was really kind. And, oh, actually one, one thing before, I can't remember if it was before, I think it was before the doctor who performed the procedure, she said to me, um, over her surgical mask, I'm pretty sure. Just mm -hmm. kind of funny thinking about COVID. Everyone's wearing these masks now. But I remember her looking me in the eye and just saying, everybody has one. And, and that really, I don't know, that really f felt right to me. Like it was, it was really, um, it just made me feel like I'm not alone. And I've told people that she said that. And some people have the reaction like, oh my God, I can't believe she said that. It's, it sounds insensitive or something, but it was, she said it with such kindness and it just, it really made me feel like I was not isolated or alone. So I appreciated that. It's a nice reinforcement of the idea that it's, it, it's worth 
talking about, um, even if you don't think you know what the right thing to say is. Um, in the few minutes that we have left, I'm curious what your, your takeaway is from this conversation. Like, um, if you have advice for listeners who, who want to be able to be helpful for friends and family. I think the, the take home for me in, in looking at the literature and, and listening to these um, stories and, and what Lexi has to say and, and you is, you know, it's very normal to feel grief and even intense grief after a miscarriage, um, even no matter how early in, in pregnancy this happens and that it's important for those around you to, to kind of acknowledge the level of grief that can be felt and, and uh, to support by listening. And, and maybe like Lexi said, not making assumptions about what people are going through, but, but just being willing, willing to kind of hold the emotions. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm just struck by the emotional power of hearing those stories. The way the details get recorded, right? The kindness of the various people and the way people look over their mask. I mean, I just, it's really remarkable how every little thing, every little gesture, right. you know, what what's a, just a general Tuesday for us as a healthcare provider is such a profound moment in the life of that person. Um, the other thing that I'm really struck by is, you know, it takes so much courage to choose to um, try and start a family right? Knowing that there is, there are so many complications that can happen, you know, miscarriage rate is so high, you know, you have to sit in all of that uncertainty and anxiety and worry, and then you have the baby, and then that just continues <laughs> with every other part. And I just, I'm really amazed by the courage that the women had to tell their story here. And I think the more we offer up spaces like this, for people to process all of those complicated emotions that we don't have a, a neat narrative to present to the world, that we're all still processing things and making sense of the things that happen to us. The more we normalize that and, and make space for people to show up in their messiness, I think the, the, the better this experience could be of, of, you know, not just, loving and losing, but also just generally being on this planet. If you are a person who loves on this planet, you're going to lose. And I think you're going to grieve and recognizing that and naming that and teaching us all, just like Veronica was saying with her son, you know, the skills to sit with people in those difficult, messy emotions. Um, I, I just, I really think that could be a very powerful tool for all of us. You know, there's a poem, I think, I think it's in the Middle Ages. I think it's like from t 1000, um, a rabbi named Yehuda Halevi. And the opening line in English is always translated as, "'Tis a fearful thing to love what death can touch." Mm. Uh, but that's exactly the human condition, isn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. um, we go through life mm -hmm. loving things that we can lose. I love just writing that down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, I always think of things kind of after the fact, but that what I was thinking after this discussion, when you asked that question was, okay, what are my action items? Because that is what we do for every meeting that I have. Um, and <laughs> I really reflected on, you know, how, what can we do to make things better? And, and, and I think Lexi brought up the idea that, you know, maybe not everything should be standardized because there isn't a standard, even though I was thinking, yeah, we should definitely standardize it. Um, and then, you know, I'm thinking screening would be really important and, and coming up with a referral list would be really important and making sure that women get psychoeducation would be really important. Um, and then I was also thinking it's, you know, maybe changing our whole culture would be really important. Um, <laughs> and, and then that got me thinking about how, you know, our, so much of our culture is turning anything that happens in people's lives into a business venture and kind of commoditizing it. And that's true for pregnancy too, where, you know, if you get a pregnancy test or if you look up online, like what size the baby is, then automatically you start getting all of these, you know, links to buying diapers and buying this and buying that. And this is how big your baby is. And this is when your babies do. And, you know, um, so the, I, this is opening up a whole nother can of worms, but there are a lot of, there are a lot of cultural things that make this particularly difficult, I think. And, and, and working on that um, would be helpful.
In addition to the action item list, maybe yeah. we can that Lexi and I can work through. <laughs> yeah, maybe we need to invent a trauma-informed web browser that <sighs> once you once you acknowledge that you've suffered this loss, they'll stop the diaper ads. Yeah. That's an amazing idea. I love that idea. Love that. All right. We'll do it and we'll make a million dollars. There you go. <laughs> find something to sell, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you, you expressed your gratitude, Lexi, for the women's stories that we've heard, and I can only echo that. I, I find Sam and Angela and Danielle and Lauren's stories to be incredibly powerful. And uh, I'm deeply grateful for them sharing them. And of course, these were just, you know, two minute excerpts where there are much longer versions of these stories on our website at hearmenowpodcast.org. And I really encourage listeners to go and spend some time with these women's stories. And we'll be growing that collection of stories in the in the months ahead. So uh, we hope that it becomes a resource for uh, clinicians, but also for individuals who want to process their own loss and reflect on other people's experiences. Veronica Zantop, Lexi Fleming, I'm so grateful for you taking this time today. I really have enjoyed the conversation. You're incredibly wise, and I have so much respect for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you so much for inviting us and giving us a chance to talk about this topic that we feel so strongly about and creating such a um, thoughtful space for these individuals to share their story. I really appreciate it. Exactly. Me too. Thank you so much. Veronica Zantop is a psychiatrist and medical director of the Swedish Center for Perinatal Bonding and Support in Seattle. She's also the medical director for reproductive mental health at Swedish. Lexi Fleming is a licensed independent clinical social worker and therapist at the Swedish Center for Perinatal Bonding and Support. Special thanks to Providence's Suzanne Engelder for her help today, and a huge thanks to the women who shared their stories of pregnancy loss with us. You can hear extended versions of those stories on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. You'll also find information on how you can contribute your own story. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on Twitter at human underscore caring. The program is produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord with help from Will Rogers. We have research assistance from medical librarians Heather Martin, Amanda Schwartz, and Sarah Viscuso. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks so much for listening. Be well.